0: Christchurch, New Malden, 11th of April 2021, Katie Loughman speaking on The Dusty Road to Emmaus. Two people were walking along the road, probably a husband and wife. They were going home from Jerusalem after the Passover festival. They were Cleopas and probably Mary, disciples of Jesus. They'd had high hopes of what their saviour would do for Israel. But that turned out to be a bitter disappointment. The long-awaited Messiah was dead. The wife, Mary, watched him die, disbelieved by the Jews and nailed to a cross by the Romans. Cleopas and Mary, trudging along that dusty road to Emmaus, were caught up by a fellow traveller who walked along the road with them. How could they have imagined that he would turn out to be so interesting? He told them amazing things that put their belief in the Messiah totally in context. A natural fulfilling of their Jewish faith. They began to see again an inkling of what they'd lost. Wouldn't it be amazing if what this stranger was saying was true? Supposing what they were hoping for was in fact fulfilled. When they got to Cleopas' house in Emmaus, the stranger was going to go on. They obviously didn't want the conversation to end, but they had to urge the stranger quite strongly to get him to come in for a meal. And it was when they sat at the table together and the stranger broke the bread that they realised who it was. Jesus was sitting right there at the table with them. He wasn't dead. He was here and everything he'd said was true. Supposing they'd been a little more English and just said, OK, we'd better let you go then, instead of urging him strongly to come in. Would Jesus have just walked on? Where to, I wonder? He wasn't going to force himself on them or just follow them into the house. They had to really want to spend time with him. Imagine if they hadn't persisted and let him keep going down the road. They'd never have seen him break the bread or recognise that it was Jesus. Never known that hope fulfilled. Never told Luke and us how their hearts burned. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that we have to actively invite Jesus in. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He doesn't just push the door and walk in. He waits for us to open the door of our hearts and invite him in. Then he'll come in. Then we can eat together. Then we can spend time listening and talking with him. Time and again the Bible shows us that knowing Jesus and his resurrection depends on people being open, hearing and acting on the impulses of their heart, then bearing witness. It happens in the moment And it happens over a lifetime, with big things and with small ones, as Jesus prompts us first to accept him, then to become the person he made us to be. Those little impulses in our hearts, we must listen to them, in case we miss Jesus speaking to us, guiding us, comforting us, or pulling us up short. That voice is easily silenced, and if we don't open our hearts to Jesus, then Jesus will just walk on. What a missed opportunity that would be. But not for them. They were so overjoyed. They got up and walked straight back to Jerusalem, seven miles, late in the evening. And there they found the other disciples saying the same thing. Jesus really was alive. That experience on the road to Emmaus was very different from Saul's experience on the road to Damascus. For Saul, the voice of God was unavoidable, loud and blinding, knocking him to the ground. Most of us rarely experience Jesus that way, if ever. For us, the slow-dawning Emmaus road experience is more likely. But this account shows that it's equally life-changing. As we walk with Jesus along the dusty roads of our lives, we gradually get to know him more. And I really treasure the moments when my heart burns within me like theirs when I see Jesus in the pages of the Bible. One thing that struck me about what happened was the importance of the road. Two people walking along, going somewhere, or more precisely, leaving somewhere, leaving Jerusalem where it all went wrong and their hopes were dashed. Were they going back to their old life? Maybe they were. They were leaving behind their faith and their hope. Had they been called by Jesus? If so, they were leaving that too. Jesus calls us to leave our old life and follow him. Yet here they were, going the wrong way. And like the shepherd in his parable, Jesus goes out into the night and finds them. He rounds them up and sends them back to the fold. Before Christianity got its name, it was called The Way. Christians were followers of The Way. It expresses the idea of faith as a journey. We walk with Jesus along the road. That's how we live our life. So these two disciples, walking along the road give us a picture of the Christian life. Jesus is always with us, but we often don't recognise him and often don't quite respond in the right way. But when we do, the hope and the peace that he brings burns in our hearts. But the good thing about these two disciples was that even though they didn't know who Jesus was, they still invited him in for a meal. They showed love and hospitality to a stranger, a fellow traveller. Have you ever made friends with someone on a journey or welcomed a stranger into your home? Or have you been on the receiving end of that? It's not what most people do here in London, is it? But maybe we should do it more often. If we welcome Jesus into our hearts spiritually, we can express that in our life as we welcome strangers practically showing love and hospitality. And who knows, we might entertain an angel unawares, like Abraham, or even Jesus himself. It's really interesting how this apparently simple account of a journey, a conversation and a meal, is actually an expression of so many aspects of our own journey of faith. Those two disciples were living out their faith by sharing love in conversation and in hospitality and it's because of that that Jesus was able to be revealed to them. Their practical faith enabled their spiritual faith. Maybe there have been times when we've felt like those two disciples, a bit disillusioned with Christianity or losing hope in seeing our prayers answered. Our faith feels more like we're trudging along a dusty road than soaring on eagles' wings. But what this shows us is that if we carry on doing the right thing, regardless of how we feel, we carry on living out our faith, eventually we'll rediscover Jesus alongside us again, and we'll be revitalised and renewed. But it wasn't only the two disciples who were living out their faith. Jesus was too. Like many people, I have often wondered what it was that Jesus said. Exactly how did he reveal himself to them through the law and the prophets and all the scriptures? The Jews have an ancient prayer called the Shemar, which for Jews is the best known and the most important prayer. It's from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Do you remember Jesus saying how important that was? Then the Shema goes on. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Throughout his life, Jesus lived out his message. His life demonstrated his message. And here he is doing it again, carrying out the Shema. Talk about God's commandments as you walk along the road. Luke says, as they walked, beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's the law, Jesus explained to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself. He was living out that command to talk about our faith as we travel together. And, of course, the reason Jesus was able to do that is because his own life, his ministry and his work on the cross is a fulfilment of the Old Testament. The prayer starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yes, God is one, but Jesus makes God known to us in a more understandable form. Throughout his teaching, he made subtle and not-so-subtle references to the fact that he is God. He reinterpreted ancient symbols that point to God, even up to his triumphant entry and the Last Supper, until he was lifted up on the cross to bring healing to the world, just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, bringing healing to God's people in the desert. Yes, O Israel, our God is one, and Jesus is that God. In verse 5, God commands us to love him with all our heart and soul and strength, and in that, Jesus was the ultimate example. He not only loved God as a human being, but he also loved his neighbours and he loves us as our God. Verse 8 of the Shema says, Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. I can't help thinking of Jesus' hands, marked forever with the scars of the nails, and his forehead also scarred by deep scratches from the crown of thorns. Much of that Old Testament law was about showing your love for God through sacrifice. Jesus turns that on its head by showing God's love for his people through his own sacrifice. As Christians, we don't tie the law to our foreheads in a phylactery, but in the baptism service, we do mark the sign of a cross on the baby's forehead to claim for them the life won by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. What does it mean for us to have God's commands tied to our hands and our forehead, or indeed written on our hearts? It means knowing what the Lord requires of us and keeping that at the front of our mind and at our fingertips, acting in accordance with God's will like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It means letting everything we do be shaped by our devotion to God, our love for him and our desire to live in his way. And sometimes that will require making sacrifices and sometimes it will require us to be a sacrifice. Ultimately, we belong to God, and our life is not our own because of Jesus' sacrifice. So when we think of Jesus' hands and his forehead, the idea of the law takes on a whole new meaning. Verse 9 says, Write them on the doorframes of your houses, the commands of God on the doorframe." like the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorframes in Egypt. It was the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the doorframe which told the angel of death that the people inside had faith, so death would pass over that house and not come in. It prefigures the Easter story. The last Passover supper becomes our communion. The Hebrews put their trust in the blood of the sacrificed lamb to save them from death. And Jews symbolise that with a copy of the law in the mezuzah on the doorframe. We put our trust in the blood of the sacrificed Lamb of God to give us eternal life. All through his life, Jesus, ever faithful, was living out his own fulfilment of the Old Testament law, embodying it in his words, his action and his life. And he reveals himself to us on our journey of faith and calls us to do the same. To live out our own faith in every aspect of our lives. And when we do that, our journey of faith becomes a journey of revelation as we rediscover Jesus right there with us.